Welcome back to our summer series covering the great talks and seminars from Revive, our annual festival. This seminar is from Ed Kendall on being faithful at church. Enjoy. Good afternoon. A very, very warm welcome to this seminar. Lovely to see you. My name is Ed Kendall. I'm the vicar of a church called St. Michael's, Fullwell, down in Teddington. And um, it's wonderful to spend this afternoon together. It's warm here, so feel free to sort of use the handouts for what you know handouts are there to do, uh, to fan yourself, keep yourself cool. Um, I spent some time on sabbatical this time last year, which was wonderful. And my sort of project for my sabbatical was the gathering and going around different churches, uh, seeing how different churches do their gatherings, and also spending some time reading about why we do what we do when we gather together as a church. And uh, I was really excited to spend some time in that. And really, this afternoon is sort of downloading that in uh, 40 minutes uh, with you guys, with a chance for discussion as well along the way. So, so that's, that's the plan, thinking about why, why do we gather, what do we do when we gather, uh, how do we make the most of our times when we come together in church. Um, if you live to the age of 80 and you go to church regularly through your life, uh, say for a, a couple of hours or so each Sunday, you will spend over 10,000 hours in church. 10,000 hours in church, in the gathering, uh, which is quite a thought. And actually, 10,000 hours that's make you, makes you an expert, doesn't it, if you uh, spend that much time doing anything. And um, I want to say those 10,000 hours quite possibly are the most significant hours that you will spend in your life. Uh, Christopher Ash, uh, a pastor, put it like this. He said, belonging in a committed and relational way to an ordinary church may be the most significant thing you can do with your life. And given that, we don't spend that much time thinking about why we do what we do and thinking about it intentionally, which is really what I want us to explore uh, this afternoon, just thinking a little bit, how are we making the most of these hours that we're putting into it, quite possibly the most significant thing we do uh, with our life. So, so that's the plan. You'll see uh, I've got uh, 12 ways to make the most of going to church in a second. But first, um, I'm going to pray for our time, and then we're going to uh, discuss uh, a little bit. So let me uh, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this time to gather with Christians from many different churches from across London. Lord, it is a precious thing to be able to gather with other believers. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have this afternoon about to think about this more deeply. And Lord, please might you equip us, might you renew us, might you rejuvenate our vision for our church gatherings such that we might serve others and worship you, and bring you honour and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I'd love us to do, just for a couple of minutes, um, turn to people around you, maybe twos and threes. If you don't know a person, just introduce yourselves very quickly. And here's a very simple question. What do you most enjoy about going to church on a Sunday? And what do you find a little bit harder about going to church on a Sunday? So just go twos and threes, uh, dot around, say hello to the, to the person next to you, Give your name. Two questions. Go for it. 
Brilliant. Um, no doubt loads of things uh, that you enjoy about church. Uh, no doubt some things that, that we find harder about gathering on a Sunday. What I want to spend some time doing is thinking about 12 ways to make the most of going to church. I'm going to try and rattle through these and particularly, actually, just to warn you, the first one is going to be uh, a little bit more in-depth. And uh, that's because, and you'll find them on your handout, so, and the, the various Bible references are in here as well, so do make the most of the handout. But the first thing to say is never underestimate the ministry of turning up. Uh, never underestimate the ministry of turning up. If we think about what church is, church is, uh, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which literally means uh, an assembly. So church is to assemble, is to gather. That is what it means to be church. Uh, one writer put it like this, an assembly must assemble to be an assembly. Uh, we need to gather together to be church. And uh, that means never underestimate the ministry of turning up. And what an encouragement. It can be simply to turn up. There'll be times where we find it incredibly difficult to, to get to church. Logistically, we might not just feel like it at all. Uh, we might turn up feeling very weak, not able to offer anything. But even just being there is just a huge encouragement to others. Never underestimate what a blessing that can be. And we're all made in different ways. We all will go about church in different ways. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are shy. Um, some of us will be deeply involved in the music or, or whatever. Others will be sort of tone deaf and music's just not your thing. Uh, one week you might be feeling very fragile or you might be feeling in a really good place, able to serve. You might be exhausted. Uh, you might be full of energy. We'll all be in different places at different times as we come to church. But just turning up, getting across the threshold is just an enormous blessing because that is what it means to be church, to actually gather. And of course, um, online church, that was uh, a blessing during the pandemic. It kept us connected, but it is a diminished form of church because to be church, we need to assemble. We need to come together. Uh, on, on the pandemic, I, I came across this survey uh, done by the Evangelical Alliance, which was done uh, a couple of years ago now. But it's quite striking that before the pandemic, 92% um, uh, of people going to church reported attending church services weekly compared to 68% afterwards. And one of the patterns people have, ob have observed post-pandemic is not so much people not going to church at all, but just going less regularly. Uh, you know, uh, once a month or twice a month rather than week by week. But never underestimate the ministry of just turning up regularly, sun Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And one thing you might consider doing is um, doing a bit of an audit of your church attendance. Uh, maybe look back over a year and see how many times have you been going to church on a Sunday. Uh, just have a look at, at, at the diary and see. Uh, it might be surprising. That it might be very encouraging. It might be actually um, we're going less than we think we might be going. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
Uh, it's so important in the Christian life that we don't go it alone. We need church. We need to gather with people. I love this proverb that says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Uh, there's something about if we isolate ourselves from the gathering, it can actually over time, we lose our judgment. We lose uh, wisdom. We need one another. Uh, think of it, a uh, couple of pictures. Think of it like a barbecue and uh, the coals on a barbecue. How do they stay hot? By keeping them together. If you remove a coal and you separate it out, it will over time just cool down. If we want to stay on fire for the Lord, we need to gather with one another. Or another analogy uh, is of uh, the redwoods in California. Uh, these trees, they grow up to about 350 foot high. And yet, did you know their roots are only five or six feet deep? And you sort of think, how on earth can they stay upright if their roots are so shallow? And the reason is, is because they might be five or six feet deep, but actually they extend about 100 feet wide. And what they do is wrap around the other roots from the other trees. So they all hold each other in place. I think that's a brilliant analogy of what church is, that we... Um, need one another to hold one another uh, firm in the gospel. Uh, one writer puts it like this, the church needs you and you need the church. So that's the first point, the longest point, uh, but it's a really crucial one. Never underestimate the ministry of just turning up, just being there, just being present. Okay, a bit more practical over the page. Uh, secondly, Arrive early, leave late, if you can, if you can. Very, very practical. Uh, but, you know, as a pastor, I know what a blessing it is when people get there early and leave late. It is just a wonderful encouragement. It means you can do so much. You can serve in so many ways, in formal ways, uh, when, you're, when you're there. Of course, it's not possible. Uh, for lots of people, lots of the times, maybe uh, because of the kids or needing a lift or there's other, other important things that, that you need to be at. Of course, that's the case. But there is just great blessing in planning to arrive early and uh, to be late. And I think part of this is just thinking about how do we view Sundays? How do we view our Sundays? Are we viewing Sundays where church is just one thing to sort of fit in to a busy day? Or are we placing gathering with other Christians right at the heart of the day and centering our day around that. That's the second thing. Third, when we gather, oh, that's exciting. What's that? Was that a balloon? That went. You never know what's going to happen in a gathering as well. Um, okay, third thing. Uh, be aware who you're meeting with. Uh, when we go to church, who are we meeting with? Who is there? Uh, we're to be aware of it. We're in the company of three. I want to suggest. Uh, one is obvious, God. And yet we can often forget that. There is something amazing when Christians gather. God is there. Yeah, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there is a particular way in which God is present with us when we gather together as Christians. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with you. He is specially present with us by his spirit, which means when we gather together, there is a, there's a gravity to it. Uh, something distinct is going on. Uh, second, we're, we're, we gather with one another. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 
uh, tells us that's pretty obvious. We gather with others around us. And third, we gather before watching world. I just want to spend a little bit of time on this one because um, Christians, we're called, Psalm 96, to declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. And I want to suggest that the Sunday gathering is possibly our best evangelistic event that we run week by week by week. Uh, Sometimes we think our evangelist events are are sort of things that happen midweek or at another time. I think our Sunday gatherings are probably our best evangelistic events. And why is that the case? I think it's the difference between buying clothes online or buying them in person, having tried them on, or buying a car online or actually going to see a car. Because online, from a distance, you, you sort of can get the theory, but you can't actually get the feel of it. And one of the wonderful things about church is that we're not just hearing the Christian message, but we're actually seeing it lived out as Christian brothers and sisters come together and live out life uh, together. And that actually, that gives a plausibility to the gospel and uh, if we're living out the gospel. So uh, it's a wonderful thing to invite people to. I wonder, sometimes we just haven't got it in our mind to invite people who are not Christians to the Sunday gathering. Never underestimate how powerful it can be and what a good evangelistic opportunity it is. So we meet in the company of three, God, whom we exalt, one another, who we seek to edify, and a watching world who we long to evangelize. And actually, in, in a church, we want to keep those things together. And sometimes, if you look through church history or across the world, it's very easy to see if we overemphasize one uh, at the sort of uh, ignoring the other two, it can lead to a sort of imbalanced church. So if our only focus is on God, then in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether or not our services are comprehensible. Uh, They can be in Latin, for example, because we're just worshipping God. Uh, And you can see how we can get into to trouble there. If our only focus is in one another, then we can just sort of turn in on ourselves, uh, lose our sense of mission and purpose. We can very easily just sort of become a social club. And actually, I can say this because I'm part of the Church of England. I think this is one of the problems that the Church of England has got at the moment, is that it's slightly not recognising when the church gathers is meeting in front of God and our unity is found through our relationship with God. Whereas if we only focus on just being with one another, then um, that can uh, be seen to be the source of unity is with one another. But unity is found uh, with God. And then sometimes if a church is solely focused on the watching world, on the world outside, then you end up, uh, you might have come across the idea of seeker-sensitive services, which can be very accessible uh, to Uh, those who are not used to church coming along to, but in the end, they become quite boring for Christians. And actually, I think they lose their evangelistic effectiveness as a result of that. So the company of three, we need to hold these together uh, in God, one another, watching world. That's the third one. Fourth, remember, you're on the pitch, not in the stands. Uh, We're not spectators. We're part of this. All of us have a part to play when, when we come to church. And uh, just think about this from one particular angle. I think a lot of this is to do with our, our attitude of heart. As we come to church, what is, what, what is our attitude of heart as we come to church? 
Are we coming to serve or are we sort of sitting slightly over it? I love this observation of, of C.S. Lewis um, from the Screwtape Letters. And uh, he writes this. You know how, how, how the, the Screwtape Letters uh, work. You've got a, a senior demon sort of um, explaining to the junior uh, demon how, how to sort of put people off uh, the Christian walk. And this is the suggestion. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him, speaking of God, to be a pupil. And I think that is a, a really perceptive observation of how it is possible to come to church with the attitude, it's possible to come to revive with the attitude of a critic, uh, sort of standing over and above proceedings uh, or looking on from the outside. Whereas actually we want to go to church as a pupil. We're, we're part of this. We're there to learn. We're there to serve one another. And it makes a very massive difference in the whole gathering, how we relate to one another. Uh, again, one writer put it like this, the real action on a Sunday is in the pew, not the platform. And that is true. We're all on the pitch. We're all uh, part of this. So that's, that's the fourth uh, suggestion. Over the page, you'll see, um, uh, I'd love to, to think a little bit about liturgy. I don't know what you make of liturgy. What I want to suggest is don't despise liturgy. Um, have you come across these before? Cubed uh, watermelons. Apparently, they were developed in Japan in order to fit in the fridge more easily. Genius idea. Uh, watermelon, they, they just sort of take up so much space. But make them cubed. They fit in the fridge very nicely, much more efficient. And the way they do that is to grow them in a glass or in a, in a box so that as the watermelon grows, it goes into a nice cubed uh, shape. Um, uh, it's reshaped. It's, it's reformed. Um, now, in many ways, I think this is a picture of what happens to us in our lives. We are constantly being shaped. We're constantly being formed by what we do, by the rituals, the habits we keep. And probably many of them we barely notice. So let me give us an example of this. Our first encounter with the phone in the morning, or whenever it is. When you are first encountering your phone, maybe you've literally just woken up. And I don't know what your routine, have a think about what is your routine when you get to your phone uh, in the morning. Uh, perhaps you check WhatsApp messages, uh, then you go on to emails, maybe look at the news, uh, look at Instagram, Twitter, whatever it might be. Maybe the weather, uh, you plan a journey. Or, or whatever you're doing. And in one sense, that is a liturgy. Uh, it's shaping what we're thinking about ourselves and our world. So just going through that sort of routine, five, ten minutes, whatever it is, it's having an impact upon us. It's shaping us. Often that's for the good. Um, it's informing us. That's a good thing. It's keeping us in touch with others. That's a good thing. It gives us a sense of connection, of knowledge. All those things are good. But it can also have a negative impact upon us. It can lead to us being easily distracted. 
Uh, maybe it sets our minds on a course we didn't want. Uh, perhaps it feeds our anxieties. Maybe it gets us going thinking, comparing ourselves with others or uh, generates worries in our, in our minds. Um, maybe uh, we have this sense of expectation that others have on us. Uh, perhaps it gives us a sense of control, even omniscience. I can know anything. The point is, we're, we're being shaped and molded and influenced all the time in the things that we do in our lives. Not all of that is bad, but where God is not at the centre of these influences, they will shape us in ways that are unhealthy. And as Christians, we need to counter this. We need to counter it. We need to be reformed. We need to be reshaped. We need to be reorientated. And I think the best place to start with that is the gathering on a Sunday with other Christians. That is an amazing place to come and be reformed and reshaped. Now, what's this got to do with liturgy? I guess for many of us, we don't think of ourselves as going to liturgical churches. We might be a little suspicious of liturgy. Isn't it all rather ritualistic and legalistic and formal and dry and dead? But if we understand liturgy, which I think is what liturgy is, is simply the way we do things, then all churches have a liturgy. Uh, Matt Merker uh, put it like this. He says, every church has a liturgy. No matter how simple or complex, how short or long, each church's order of service expresses a set of theological values. And in turn, the liturgy gradually inculcates those same values in the church's members. So it's, it's the way we do things in church. And I guess our churches will all be a little bit different in how that happens. Um, some will use a bit more sort of historic liturgy, confessions, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Supper uh, liturgy. Uh, others will be a bit more uh, contemporary um, and, and informal uh, some liturgies planned, some of it's spontaneous. Uh, it can look lots of different ways. Um, but this brings us on to the sixth point I want to make, is that through the liturgy, through what we do throughout that time we are gathered, what is happening, I'm sure in all our churches, is that we're being reminded of the story of the gospel. So that leads to the sixth point. Be restored through the restoring of the gospel. Uh, that seems a very clunky sentence. Uh, you can blame Andrew Wilson for that. He said this, restoring people involves restoring people. So if we understand we're being shaped by all sorts of stuff in our lives, and not all of that is good, it's, it's deforming us in so many ways. But when we come together with God's people, that is an opportunity to be reshaped, to be reorientated, to recalibrate our lives. And we do that as we gather, and God uses ordinary means of grace to retell us the story of the gospel. So at St. Michael's, for example, the shape of our service is, broadly speaking, like I put down on, on the handout there. And I suspect your churches are quite similar. You sort of, we start with adoration. We start with songs of praise. And that's a wonderful opportunity to just remind us 
that God is at the center of the universe, to lift our eyes to him, to take our eyes away from whatever the worries, anxieties, the stuff going on in our lives, and to lift our eyes to the Lord. Those opening songs are just a wonderful, opening prayer is a wonderful opportunity to reorientate our lives and uh, look towards God in adoration. And then we... uh, we actually then have a sort of church family focus and some stuff for the kids. And then the kids go out and then we come back to a time of confession. And actually that fits well because when we start to look at God, we become more aware of our sin, of the reality of the fall in the world and in our own lives. And so it's right and appropriate to come before God in confession. 1 John uh, says we must do that. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we, we say a prayer of confession at that point. And then we spend the rest of the service really just reminding ourselves about redemption, of the story of the gospel, whether that's a, a, a verse of reminding ourselves of the, of the grace that's available through the Lord Jesus Christ. We sing songs together that remind us of the gospel. We hear God's word read. We listen to God's word preached. Uh, Sometimes we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper. We'll come on to that a little bit later on. But the point is, through all of this, we are being reminded of the gospel, restoried. It's what the Israelites did again and again and again. If you read through the Old Testament, it was constantly reminding themselves of the story of God's redemption. And then finally, we're we're sent out. We're commissioned. I don't know if you ever thought about that. At the end of the service... Um, that's a moment where we're being sent out to serve God, to uh, live for him until he returns. Again, a little bit more of that in just a moment. Okay, that's uh, sixth. Seventh, sing such that the music draws, out, draws our praise and drives in the gospel. Sing such that the music draws out, that should say, praise and drives in the gospel. Uh, Matt Merker again, he said, uh, when you join a church, you join the choir. Uh, We're all part of the choir. We're all part of um, uh, the congregation singing together. Our faith is a sung faith. Singing's always played a massive part in the people of God. You see that in the Psalms. You see that surrounding Jesus' birth and the songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angels and Simeon. Uh, Paul and Silas in prison singing away. The new creation, we're going to be singing. Um, And it's worth thinking, where do we sing? I think we sing in two directions in church. We sing towards God and we sing towards one another. Uh, And it's worth thinking about those. As we sing towards God, that that is a moment where we can praise God. And uh, can I encourage us to be present in that moment as we praise God? Sometimes we see the songs as sort of the ad break. You know, the ad breaks come on and we sort of have a mental switch off, a uh, mental cup of tea, uh, ready for the next part of the service. That's a missed opportunity uh, to praise God. But we also sing to one another. Uh, we don't want to be too individualistic in this. Uh, the glory of singing is that we can hear one another. What an encouragement that's been already this weekend. Uh, don't hold back in your singing. I used to teach in a, in a school. It was an all-boys school. And every now and then we had the excruciating moment where uh, we had to sing a hymn in assembly. And, and the boys would just 
they had mastered the art of opening your mouth so it looked like you were singing, you wouldn't get into trouble, but without anything coming out. And it just went quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter. And it was a miserable experience. Uh, much better in church, just to belt it out. I think of um, a friend of mine who just cannot sing for his life. And I remember being at a service, just a terrible, terrible voice. And he was just absolutely bellowing out what a beautiful name it is. And it was so incongruous. It was just terrible singing. And yet just wonderful hearing someone just going for it, praising God. Actually, that was really wonderfully encouraging. So don't hold back on your singing. Uh, Colossians 3 says this, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And I think that passage is saying, uh, singing, what it helps do, it helps to drive deep the gospel within us. So often our knowledge can be uh, in our heads, our faith can be in our heads, but as we sing, it's a chance to bring it down into our hearts. But I think there's another way, it sort of draws out praise from us. I don't know if you've experienced, you come to church and actually in some ways you feel a little bit like you've been spiritually in the deep freeze. You feel just sort of frozen. You need to be thawed out. Um, and music is just a wonderful way of doing that. I think it's often why singing more than one song in a row is really, really helpful. The first song slightly washes over and the second one you're beginning to get into it. Third, you're there. And music just draws out that praise from us. Now, seventh, eighth, enjoy praying with others. Enjoy praying with others. Um, it's actually, I, I think we sometimes think about prayer as being primarily a private thing that we sometimes do publicly. Uh, that's not what Calvin thought, interestingly. John Calvin said this. Um, he emphasized that it's public ministry that shapes private devotion, not vice versa. And the point he's making is that actually, how do we learn to pray? We learn to pray in the public gathering. We learn to pray from hearing other people pray. Uh, so enjoy making the most of praying with one another. And of course, there are loads of opportunities uh, to do that as we gather with others. Uh, make the most after a service. Um, ask to pray with somebody. Often people have prayer teams uh, to go to. That's a great thing to, to do as well. Uh, ninth. Listen to, retain, and persevere with God's Word. Of course, God's Word, the sermon, is right at the centre of our, our time together. Actually, God's Word is shot through the whole of our gathering, the whole of our services. Uh, whether we're seeing God's Word, praying God's Word, uh, reading God's Word, preaching God's Word. But there is a risk that we don't really engage with it, that we don't allow it to go deep in us. Uh, the parable of the, the sower is a great place to go on this. How easy it is to be like the seed that fell on the path and in one ear, out the other. Or uh, to, to be like uh, the seed that fell amongst the thorns and uh, it has a little bit of fruit, but then the worries of life and riches and pleasures causes us not to mature. But we see here, uh, Luke 8 verse 15, it's the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Uh, Thomas Cramner. Have you come across Thomas Cramner? He was um, uh, archbishop around the time of Henry VIII and uh, uh, wrote many amazing prayers. 
and much of actually Anglican liturgy sort of uh, he, he wrote and has been sort of shaped from what he wrote. But he wrote this great line, uh, this great prayer that is something to pray as we come to God's word, uh, where he asked God, Bless Lord, which has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. So uh, worth taking notes uh, in sermons, if that works well for you. Uh, Read the passage beforehand. Uh, Most churches will say what's being preached on. It makes such a difference reading the passage beforehand. You just know uh, what's coming up. That's night. Tenth. Find assurance in the visible word of baptism. Uh, I don't know how much you've thought about what baptism is. Uh, Augustine called it a visible word. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Watson called it a visible sermon. Andrew Wilson says this, The word is not just heard, but seen, felt, smelled, and tasted. Uh, Jesus obviously commanded us to do this. Matthew 28, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're commanded to do this. Uh, but I wonder if we thought how, what, a, what an encouraging thing it is to have actually tangible signs uh, for us to be reminded what we have in the gospel. Uh, we're not just brains. We're made of stuff, of flesh and blood. And so perhaps it's not surprising that God should seek to speak to us and encourage us, not simply through words, but through the stuff of this world, through water, bread, and wine. Stuff that, you know, in and of itself doesn't necessarily amount to much. But when you invest it with meaning through words and through the gospel, then it becomes incredibly significant for us. Uh, That's how a sort of sign works. Think of a flag. I mean, what is a flag? A flag is just a piece of cloth uh, that flutters in the wind. But when you invest it with meaning, uh, the Union Jack or whatever, it represents the nation. Um, And then it becomes a very significant thing. Just think how you would feel in your gut if you saw your flag being burnt. It sort of does something to you. And why? It's just a piece of cloth. That's a bit odd. But when it's invested with meaning, then it becomes a very precious, significant thing. And likewise with baptism, it's just water. And yet invested with meaning, it becomes a huge encouragement to us. And just think of how water uh, is invested with meaning in in the Bible, particularly uh, the water of judgment. Where does water come in the Bible? I mean, baptism symbolizes lots of different things, cleansing, the water of life. But I think particularly judgment. I think Noah and how when God brought judgment on the world, he brought a flood, covered it in water, an act of sort of decreation, as it were. Uh, Moses and the people of Israel in the Exodus, they went through the Red Sea, they went through water. And then the Egyptians came behind and the waters folded on them on, in judgment. And just before the Israelites went into the promised land, they went through the River Jordan and the waters were held back and the Israelites went into the promised land. And um, water represents judgment. And so when Jesus came, 
And he said to his disciples, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He is talking about the judgment that he's about to face. He's about to be the one to go into the water, into the water of judgment we see during the time of Noah's Ark or the Red Sea or the River Jordan. He's the one who's going to take the judgment on his shoulders so that we can go through out the other side. And so whenever there's a baptism, that is reminding, this is what is true for you if you put your trust in Jesus. Of course, baptism is a one-off event. But whenever you see a baptism, or whenever you look back to your own baptism, your baptism, as it were, it preaches to you. It says you are saved because Jesus took God's wrath the waters of judgment on your behalf. And it's tangible and you can feel it. I guess on a day to night's day, you would love to be sprayed with water all over us. And we're just, you feel it, it's physical, it's real. It's a visible sermon, visible word. And same with the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we're to be built up. The Lord's Supper is something that we can do ongoing. Again, it's something Jesus commanded us to do, saying this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is, in, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And uh, so much is going on, again, during the Lord's Supper. Meals are such a big theme through uh, the Bible. And uh, we do all sorts of things as we... Uh, do the Lord's Supper. We look back at Jesus' death, his body broken for us, his blood shed. Uh, we look up uh, because there's a sense in which we are communing with Jesus by his spirit. Uh, we look around, we're communing also with one another. Uh, we share one loaf. Uh, we are, as it were, family coming together, eating together. We look ahead to the new creation, uh, which is so often described as a meal. Uh, it represents so much. And so make the most of it. Don't see the Lord's Supper as just a sort of tag on at the end, but it's something tangible, uh, a tangible way that God says, I love you. It's the difference between um, with my wife saying, I love you, which is obviously a good thing to say and means something, but giving a hug, it's, it's, there's something tangible about that as well. You, you need both, not just a hug and no words. You want both. I love you. And it's a hug. And in many ways, that is a good way of understanding what baptism and the Lord's Supper are, tangible things. Uh, to, to just reinforce this a little bit, you'll see on your handout uh, a really interesting thing that Tim Chester did. And I'm going to recommend a book that Tim Chester has just written. I think it's on the bookstall. Uh, it's called Truth We Can Touch. If you want to think a bit more about baptism and the Lord's Supper and the place that plays in our lives. And I think it's probably something we're not particularly good in our um, Christian world of thinking about the significance of baptism, the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is a brilliantly helpful book to read, uh, Tim Chester. And I'm just going to uh, read you an extract from it because he uh, takes us to a, a blog post that a chap called R.C. Sproul wrote. And he wrote this when uh, his wife had died. And he wrote this post, Husbands, hold your wife's hand. And he was reflecting on... Uh, following his wife's death. He says this, My deepest regret is that I did not hold her hand more. It's not, of course, that I never held her hand. It is likely, however, that I didn't as often as she would have liked. 
Holding our hand communicates to her in a simple yet profound way that we're connected. Taking her hand tells her, I'm grateful that we are one flesh. Taking her hand tells me, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It is a liturgy, an ordinary habit of remembrance to see more clearly the extraordinary reality of two being made one. It would have, even in the midst of a disagreement or moments of struggle communicated, we're going through this together, I will not let go. That's a lovely thing to write, um, to say, you know, let's hold hands. It really matters, that sort of physical touch. Now, see what Tim Chester does with it. He says in many ways, this is how we can understand what the Lord's Supper's doing for us. He rewrites it about the Lord's Supper. He says this, My deepest regret is that I have not partaken of communion more, or rather that I have not given it the significance it deserves. It's not, of course, that I never take communion. It's likely, however, that I don't as often as Christ would like me to. Communion communicates in a simple yet profound way that we are connected. In communion, Christ tells me, I am glad that we're one flesh. In communion, Christ says to me, you are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It is a liturgy, an ordinary habit of remembrance by which I see more clearly the extraordinary reality of two being made one. It is a means by which, even in the midst of a disagreement or moments of struggle, Christ communicates to me, we're going to go through this together. I will not let go. It's a great gift, the Lord's Supper, that Jesus has given us. Baptism, they're a great gift. Uh, Don't despise them, uh, but find assurance in the visible word of baptism. Be built up in the visible word of the Lord's Supper. And finally, finally, uh, having gathered, then scatter. Having gathered, then scatter. Uh, We're together on Sundays. We gather together, but then we're to go out uh, for uh, the rest of the week. Gathering one day sets us up for being scattered the other six. The Puritans used to call the Lord's Day, I love this, the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. And sort of think about it. Think about that moment where your fridge is totally empty. You're out of food. There's nothing in the cupboards. And then the Saint Street's van comes along and loads everything up. And that's just a wonderful moment where the fridge is then full and groaning and you're all in again. And that is what Sundays are to do for us. They're to sort of fill us up. They are to to give us, equip us, restock us for the week ahead. Or think of it in terms of, you know, if you've been out on a long day and uh, perhaps a big day up in town with the family or returning from work, it's been raining, you're soaked to the bone, the legs are aching uh, from all the walking, uh, your, your feet are being killed by your shoes, you're tired, you're hungry. And then that moment when you get home, is it a great moment? And you can press reset and you get the shoes off and you perhaps get in the shower, fresh clothes, some food, you just begin to feel revitalized. Spiritually speaking, that is what Sundays are to do for us gathering together. That is what they're to do for us. We can arrive on a Sunday morning feeling spiritually spent, soaked to the bone after a week in the world. We're perhaps discouraged. We're feeling spiritually malnourished. Perhaps we're aware of our sin, our unworthiness. God feels remote. But as we come together, as we spend that two hours or so together, 
It has a major impact upon us as we sing, as we pray, as we hear from God's word, as we chat with one another. God can do a remarkable thing. He resets us. He refreshes us. He revitalizes us. He reminds us of his love, of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And he calls us to, to go again. And then he sends us out, commissions us, sends us out with his blessing into the world. So don't give up meeting together. Uh, never underestimate the, 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 the value of the ministry of turning up and what it can do uh, for us. Now, we are out of time, but just for one minute, what I'd love us to do is just turn to the people that you were chatting to earlier. Um, one thing, perhaps one thing that you'll take away uh, from what we've been thinking about. Uh, just uh, t- turn in twos and threes, and then we'll come back to close in a second. I'm sorry I haven't got more time for this, but just for, for, for two minutes, um, any questions, observations, just to sort of gather together our thoughts, then I'll pray and we'll be done in a couple of minutes' time. But any, any questions, observations uh, that people have had or would like to, to share or ask? Should have warned you that I was going to do this. Communion. Yeah, we were just saying, I mean, shouldn't should we be aspiring to, you know, weekly communion? Because like you said, there, there's so much positive about that. I think there was a slight, in our, our flavour of church, we kind of slightly pushed it back a bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a long running discussion how often to have communion. Uh, I think there is definitely a sense in which uh, our type of churches have seen the ways in which both baptism and communion have been misused. And so we can sort of get a little bit nervous around them and sort of um, the dangers that we then neglect them. And they are a very precious gift that Jesus has given us. And so we do want them to be, I would say, regularly apart. I think there's freedom as to how often. At St. Michael's, we're, we're once a month. We, we try to do it in uh, each of our services. So I'll end up being, being two or three over the course of, of a month. But uh, yeah, they're, they're a great, great blessing. And enjoy, enjoy those moments um, and, and make the most of them. Any any other? Yeah. Oh, there's a microphone as well. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, Before um, 90% before the pandemic and then after 60%, what did you mean by that? Was that um, people who go to church? Yeah, that is in terms of attendance. Um, So uh, these are churchgoers. 92% 92% reported attending church services weekly. Those are Christians belonging to a church um, saying uh, that 92% go to church weekly, but then it dropped to 68% afterwards. So, so the point was really weekly attendance quite dramatically fell following the pandemic. And it's difficult to know where that's up to now. This survey is a little bit old. But anecdotally, my sense is actually people do probably come to church a little less frequently. They don't stop going to church, they're just less frequently. And uh, that could, I just raise that because I think that could be a danger that we could fall into. Um, and the pandemic sets slightly different habits. And I just encourage us 
Keep going to church Sunday by Sunday. It's worth saying, parents, I think almost the single best thing we could do for our children is to make Sundays the, the priority. And we just go to church. We just do it week by week by week by week. Obviously, there's nothing uh, guaranteed that therefore that will produce uh, Christians uh, simply by going to church. But um, church is a powerful thing. It, it, it does stuff. And therefore, just to see that as a priority in our lives is, is worth planning for and thinking intentionally about. Obviously, be away on holidays. I mean, it's worth thinking, you know, I'm a member of staff at our church. Uh, we have six weeks holiday from church. And um, so I'll be away no more than six Sundays in, in a year. Now, it's maybe a little bit different as the vicar of the church. But in one sense, what about for everyone? We could all, you know, we'll be away inevitably for a few weeks and stuff will happen. Um, but to be thinking, yeah, let's, let's make church just such a priority that we're there almost always. Um, and that just does so much, so encouraging, such a wonderful way of blessing and serving one another. Brilliant. Um, we should draw it to a close. Come and chat. I'd love to, 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 to chat more about this. If there's anything that sort of that stirred or things you're not sure about, come and chat. Uh, it'd be a delight to do so. Thank you so much for being here. Through the heat as well, uh, top effort on the four o'clock Saturday afternoon slot. Uh, you'll be more than entitled to be fast asleep right now. And uh, you've done brilliantly. So thank you so much. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll go our separate ways. Father, we just thank you so much for one another. And that we, we are not called to live the Christian life on our own, but that we belong to churches. Thank you for just the wonderful churches represented here uh, that we can belong to. How precious it is, how precious it is to have brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we dearly love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank you for this encouragement from Hebrews to consider how we may spur one another on to, toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. Lord, help us to do that all the more as we see the day approaching for our good and for your honour and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wonderful. Bless you all. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for more great talks from Revive. See you next time.